everyone. I'm Jensine Bard, and welcome to Testimony, where truth is told, lives are changed, and hope is given. Revelation 12:11 tells us that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, a testimony of your story for His glory. In a day and age when fake news is more the headline than actual fact, these national news publications, Time Magazine and Newsmax, got it right when they named my next guest as, quote, America's historian, a hero to millions, and, quote, the top 25 and top 100 most influential evangelicals in America today. Why? His exhaustive research, expertise, and tireless efforts to communicate and document America's forgotten history, its heroes, and the moral and religious fiber that make up our constitutional heritage, for starters. From his massive library museum of tens of thousands of original documents and artifacts from early America, there is no disputing the facts, which have made their way into popular history books now used in schools across this nation. As an expert in historical and constitutional issues, this, I would like to say, Paul Revere of Truth and Justice has espoused his findings before the Supreme Court, the halls of Congress, and anywhere his 400 speaking engagements per year will take him. He is the recipient of several national and international awards, co-host of the daily Wall Builders Live radio program and best-selling author of several books, his latest, which we will talk about today, This Precarious Moment, Six Urgent Steps That Will Save You, Your Family, and Our Country in collaboration with co-author James L. Garlow. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a wonderful honor indeed, founder and president of wallbuilders.com, David Barton. David, welcome to Testimony. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. David, before we begin, and it's great to have you, I must give a shout out to our mutual friend and your collaborator, Dr. James L. Garlow, whose frontline efforts on behalf of our nation is also well documented, and we'll be getting his take as well in the days to come. And also, a dear friend, Susan Howard, actress and activists who first recommended your amazing work. So great, we could finally connect today, so let's get right to it. David, why did you decide to write this book, This Precarious Moment? You know, we in America have an unusual problem, and that is we take a lot of things for granted because we've been so different from other nations. And just one example, we've had the same Constitution for 231 years. Great. Yeah, but the average length of a constitution in the history of the world is 17 years. See, we're so used to stability, we just think it's always going to be here. And we're so used to prosperity. We, do you know that people living in poverty in America, statistically speaking, live at a higher level of lifestyle than the average middle class in Europe? So, I, I mean, even poverty in America, that's why everybody in the world wants to come to America. If they can just live in poverty here, they've elevated their lifestyle. We don't think of ourselves in that term. We just think of how great America is, and it's so great that we can complain about it and criticize it, and we can have all these protests because we're such a terrible place. We we have no clue 
who we are, but because we are who we are, we just kind of take it for granted. And the problem is that both history and truth, as well as statistics, show that we got some real problems going that that may may imperil us. And here's a great example: we've had recorded history of socialism goes 4,500 years. It goes all the way back to Genesis 8, 9, and 10. Uh, the first attempt at socialism was in the Bible. It was a failure. As a matter of fact, God openly condemned it. And so over the course of the last 4,500 years, you've had thousands of socialistic governments, thousands. And they've all tried different things and new things. And here's the challenge. Name a single socialistic government in 4,500 years where that government has increased prosperity of the people and increased the freedom of the people. And you will not find a single one. Okay, so what's it have to do with us? Right now, 75% of the students in college think that America should be socialistic, think that we should have a socialistic form of government. 53% of students in college think that we need to change the First Amendment free speech protection. 19% of students in college think that violence is an appropriate response to speech with which you disagree. Now, these are all things we've taken for granted, but there is a huge change on the horizon, not just there. Uh, the church has decided to disengage um, from a standpoint of evangelicals in America, born-again Christians, and Jesus said you can't enter the kingdom of heaven if you're not born again. In America, born-again Christians have fallen from 47% to now only 31% of Americans are born again, and that's in the last 15 years. It's plummeted. 95% of Christians do not share their faith with anyone else. And currently today, 72% of born-again Christians think that you can get to heaven other than through Jesus. And you have 47% who think that Jesus said, well, he's on earth. And if Jesus said, then you can't get to heaven through Jesus, period. So we're looking at, at things going on in church, at, at things going on with, with our next generation, at things going on with immigration and racial relations. And, and there are six things that we are at a turning point in America if we don't get these solved. And we're not looking for government to solve it. What we did in this book was said, okay, every one of these six areas, there are things that individuals can do that will turn the ship. And that's why we think it's such an important time. Uh, we've arrived at a place America's never been at. History and statistics tell us we can't continue to be here. We have to, we have to do something, go back and reverse or go forward and, and you know, no longer be the nation we have been. And that's why we call it this precarious moment. How would you describe the word precarious? It's really a dangerous, it's potentially dangerous. It's when, you know, I'm on my ranch right now. I'm a cowboy in Texas. It's when I walk up on a rattlesnake I did not see, and he's trying to decide whether to strike me or whether to back away from me and leave me alone. That's a precarious moment. I'm looking danger in the face, and there's a decision that has to be made about which way we're going to go and whether this thing escalates or whether we de-escalate it. And that's the precarious moment. We are at a tipping point unlike any we've ever faced in America. And we've got to look it in the face and decide what we're going to do. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to David Barton, founder and president of wallbuilders.com, heralded historian and author of his latest must-read, This Precarious Moment. David, how did we get here? You know, that's, that's a great question, and the Bible answers that in a little by little. It's little by little, line on line, precept on precept, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. We actually have to take most of these things back to the 1920s, 30s, and 40s to see where the seed of these ideas got introduced. And then we watch it grow over time. 
And so now we're at the point where, that uh, back in Matthew 25, when Jesus, uh, the, it's the parable where the disciples came to him and said, hey, looks like the enemy has been out in the field sowing tares. Should we pull up all the tares? And Jesus said, no. The, or the master in, in the parable, Jesus said, no, you can't do that, because if you pull up all the tares, all the weeds, you're going to pull up the good, good stuff with it. You're going to have to let it grow, and then there's going to have to be a harvest time at some point. And so what's happened is all these tares, all these weeds have started growing up among us, and now they are as much as the good stuff is. And there's got to come a harvest point where we say, okay, now we're going to have to go in and just clean it out and get the stuff out of here. Uh, it's at a point of maturity where that if we don't deal with this, we're going to have serious trouble. So it is a slow process. And part of what we do is we, we go back, even with the relationship of Israel, we go back to 1917 and show that all the things that we're facing right now, it's been 101 years coming to, to where the, the crisis America is facing in our relations with Israel, which right now currently happen to be very good. But still, policy-wise, there, there are some lurking things that need to be dealt with. So, or, or whether you take immigration, uh, this is something that we've been putting off. Immigration really changed back in 1891. Our philosophy of immigration did. It escalated in 1920s and 30s. And since 1980s, we have taken a, a, a really different view. But again, it's been incremental. So we really show how all this came to be. And now that it is where it is now, Now's the time to get in and, and kind of separate the wheat from the tares and get this thing fixed. David, I had a recent guest that talked about anti-Semitism in the textbooks and a quote from Hitler that said, give me the textbooks and then I will give you the state. Would you say that is probably a core reason why this millennial generation think the way they do today? Well, the... the Part of what we know with this millennial generation is education right now is no longer education. It is indoctrination. And I don't say that as hyperbole. I don't, you know, I'm not making a big deal over what it is. I'm just pointing out that right now education, the kids that come out of it, what they do is only 27.6% of students graduate and are able to use their degrees to get a job. Three out of four students have a degree, they can't get a job. We know from government statistics right now that the age of adolescence has been extended from 18 years old, which used to be when you're 18, you get your driver's license and you get a loan at the bank and you register for the draft and you register to vote. And The government now says the age of adolescence extends to 35 years old. You're an adolescent until you're 35 years old because that's when you decide to engage and, and, and take on the culture and, and become mature. So I, I'm not using hyperbole to say that it's indoctrination. It literally is. If you look at Harvard course catalog, and Harvard's one of the elite universities in America, at least that's its reputation. If you look at the Harvard course catalog right now, you will find 295 listings for sexuality in the Harvard catalog. Really? Is this what we need to be teaching most of all to, to go out? No, this is indoctrination. And this is why four out of five uh, who graduate from college right now believe there is no absolute moral truth that is individually determined, that I can choose what I want. And so we are at a point where education it has, particularly higher education, has failed. It's done a great job of telling young people that we need to be socialist. It's done a great job of telling them we need to get rid of the Constitution. You should not allow people to disagree with you. If they have a different viewpoint, you reject them. And if you need to be violent, you go ahead and do that. It's, I mean, this is the reality of where we are. So that's, uh, again, why we call it this precarious moment. That's a dangerous place to be. But we're going to have to look at this in the face and, and face it down and say, no, here's what we're going to do in our schools. Here's what we're going to do in education. 
my kids that are going to school, here's how I'm going to inoculate them from what they're about to face and see. And so this this is one of those things where that this is not going to be a corporate solution. This is in the sense of a big body. This is going to be a solution where that each individual is going to have to engage. And this 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 winning will be done at the individual level by individual people making decisions on what they're going to do. And I imagine that's why you look at six different areas in your book, This Precarious Moment, and apply the biblical as well as historical background to each of these areas. Sir, if I may, I would like to read from page 215, first paragraph, subtitle, What Happened, and I quote, The de-Christianizing of American public life and the open rejection of our historic biblical foundations has resulted in a nation exploding in crime, sexual anarchy, wrecked homes and lives, now leaving massive human pain and carnage in its wake. Who is to blame for the dramatic downturn of American culture? David Barton, your thoughts. Well, that downturn really comes back to we the people. Now, what's happened is we live in a culture right now that is really very good at paralyzing us. And and let me just give an example. If you watch media on TV, it doesn't matter whether you watch Fox or MSNBC or CNN or Bloomberg, it doesn't matter. What you get is a steady 24-7, 365 diet of national news. And you see what's happening at the national level. You see what's happening with race relations, or you see what's happening with the court reversing the definition of marriage that we've had for literally 5,500 years, or you see what's happening with bathrooms and kids in school having one locker room, and, and you're saying, that's not right. But here's the problem we have. We see that, and you know I'm very well connected in Washington, D.C. There's probably 100 members of Congress I consider to be very good friends. I can't pick up the phone and call the Supreme Court and say, "Hey guys, what are you doing on that marriage decision?" And I can't call I can't call Mitch McConnell and say, "Mitch, you got 500 bills the House has passed. Why don't you get some of them through the Senate?" I just there's nothing I can do with that. And so what happens is because we can't do that, we become really kind of incapacitated. We're just frozen, and we fail to see that. That's not where the problem is. That's where we see the problem, but the problem is much, much closer to home. It's much more local. As a matter of fact, I love pointing to the American Revolution when they had all the tyranny from the British and everything was going on. You had the first battle, the Battle of Lexington, the second battle was the Battle of Concord, and the third battle was the road to Boston. And and all these battles, Bunker Hill, everything else, nobody called the commander-in-chief and said, hey, commander-in-chief, you're the national head. What do you want us to do? They all said, no, 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 this is our community. We'll take care of it. And so the Battle of Lexington was the Reverend Jonas Clark getting 70 guys from his church to go out and face the British. The Battle of Concord was the Reverend William Emerson saying, this is my town. They got 300 guys in his church. They went out and faced the British. The same on the road to Boston, the same with Bunker Hill, Reverend Francis Willard. So we understood that if everybody takes care of what's at their house and what's in their community, the nation will be healthy. We won the American Revolution not by fighting a national battle. We fought all the local battles and won them. And so that's what we have lost today in the way that we are really trained with national media. We see national stories, and we focus on national problems and national issues. And you know what? I can't make Iran do what they should toward Israel, and I wish I could. That's not the solution. The solution is much more local. And that's really what we point out in the book is we got these national problems, but you won't solve them nationally. You'll solve them at a local level. 
um, I love the Bible verse in, in Luke where Scripture says, now the axe is laid to the root. You know, we're seeing a lemon tree, and we don't like lemons on the tree, and so we keep picking the lemons. Well, that doesn't kill the tree. You've got to lay the axe to the root. And so what we're dealing with in America right now is we keep trying to pick the fruit off the tree and kill the tree by picking the fruit, which will never do it. We're not going back to the roots. And, and that's really what we do in, in the book is, okay, how did education get to where it is? How are we now raising a generation of millennials that what they believe has been proven 100% of the time in history to destroy a nation, but they don't know that? So how, how do we fix that educational problem? How, how do we fix what's going to immigration with 11 million illegals here? And not all of those people are, are bad-intentioned or bad-hearted by any way, shape, fashion, or form. Some have great intentions. But how do we get that problem of 11 million since... I mean, when Reagan fixed this, it was only three million, and we said we'd never again have this problem. Now here we are, 25 years later, with 11 million. How do we get here? And this is where we see big problems at the nation, but we don't go back to see what the root of those problems was and, and lay the axe to the root. And that's what we have to do individually as citizens. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to heralded historian David Barton, founder and president of WallBuilders.com. His latest must-read this precarious moment. David, in your book, This Precarious Moment, you address six particular issues, racial healing, immigration, millennials, a Judeo-Christian nation, the church, and Israel. If you had to pick just one specific area that you deem the most critical in turning our nation around and the minds of our youth and pastors, and adults, parents, teachers, all of us, what would it be and why? That's a good question. There's several things that go parallel, but I would put the church at the first first line. Because when the church, if the church goes sour and Christians go sour, you've got no basis from which to do biblical precepts and the rest of it. You can't, and by the way, let me just point out, the Bible is very good at giving solutions in every area. Now, we're at a point in America today where only 14% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis. Only 10% of Christians have a biblical worldview. Only 4% of millennials have a biblical worldview. So we don't know much about the Bible except what other people told us because we haven't read it. But the Bible, one of the significant things about the Bible is that, that God... He took his people out of slavery in Egypt, got them out in the desert, and said, okay, I'm going to make a nation out of it. You're all a bunch of former slaves. You don't have a clue how government works. Let me show you. And so what he did was he gave them 613 laws on how to run a nation. And those laws deal with military. They deal with foreign affairs. They deal with economics and taxation. They deal with immigration. They deal with education. They deal with everything. And any time you apply God's principles, you alleviate human suffering you increase human happiness. It's just the way it always is. But today we think, well, the Bible doesn't have anything to, to say about you know race relations the way they are today. I mean, you got cops shooting all these these black folks, and the Bible doesn't talk about. No, that's because you haven't read it, or somebody's told you it doesn't. And so I, I think the first solution is is accepting the fact that God does not want His people to suffer and go through what they do, and He has given solutions to help us avoid that. But you can't apply those solutions if you don't know what they are, and you don't know what they are if Christians won't be Christians and if the church won't be the church. And at this point, we're looking at, at literally where only 2.8% of pastors, and we have 384,000 pastors in America, senior pastors and churches, 72% say they do not believe the Bible, and 28% say they do. That's 100,000. That's good. 
Out of that, 90% say they will not talk about what the Bible talks about if that issue has also appeared in the news. So now we're letting the news decide what we do and don't talk about out of the Bible. We find that only 2.8% of pastors today are willing to address what the Bible addresses if it's, all, if it's also been in the news. So if the Bible does not become understood not as just a book of salvation, but as a book of economics, you know, where do we get the free market system out of the Bible? Most people cannot point to the Bible verse that condemns the progressive income tax or the Bible verse that condemns the estate tax or the Bible verse that condemns the capital gains tax or the Bible verse that affirms capitation taxes. The Bible is great on economics, what it says about debt, what it says about nations being in debt. We just don't know that. So if I were to choose one thing, I would say it has to go back to those institutions that can help apply and teach and help people understand biblical solutions, which have across the course of 5,500 years recorded history, that's been what works. And if we don't do that, then government's going to flounder around trying to find a solution for immigration or for racial relations or for relations with Israel, or they're going to try to find a solution for education, and, and it won't be based in, in things that work. So that's why I would probably say the church, and particularly Christians in the church, uh, it's got to be the number one solution, and, and that's why we focus as much as we do on that one area. That's a great answer. And so to summarize what you just said, pastors have basically abdicated their spiritual and integral authority. Yeah, what they are the products of what they've been taught, and seminaries have done a really lousy job of, of teaching what the Bible teaches. They now teach more in pedagogy. Of those 28% of pastors who do believe the Bible, when you ask those 28% of pastors, how do you know if your church is successful, the top five answers, none of them come out of the Bible. But this is what we've been taught on how to have a successful church, and we're not using the Bible as the basis. And so we have moved away from discipleship, which is the command of Jesus and the Great Commission, make disciples of all people, and we no longer train them on what the Bible says about so many of these issues. And so with pastors having moved away now, I will say this, I firmly believe America's in a national revival right now. I think there's no doubt about it. I think I can statistically prove that. But I will also point out that in every other revival we had in America, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the turn-of-the-century revivals, the church was always the last to come on board. As a matter of fact, the church fought the revivals for the great part of them because they said, that's not the way we do it. That's not the way we've been taught. That's not the way we were trained. And so George Whitfield, that's one of the reasons in the First Great Awakening, he had to preach in outdoor meetings because the pastors so opposed him, said, we don't do this kind of stuff. That's not what the church does. And it was Whitfield who eventually won them over. And in the last 10 years of the Great Awakening, the church started participating. The same with the Second Great Awakening. So I think the church will eventually get on board. They will be irrelevant for a while, as they were in those other two revivals. This is their time to start becoming relevant again. And we show them exactly how they can, how to embrace what's going on, how to get back to what the Bible actually says, rather than what their traditions are. And if the church will do that, then the last part of this national revival will be explosive in a good sense, as it was in the First and the Second Great Awakening, when it did so much to end slavery in the Second Great Awakening, and so much to, to bring freedom and independence in the First Great Awakening. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to best-selling author, speaker, renowned historian, and founder of wallbuilders.com, David Barton, whose latest best-selling, in collaboration with co-author James L. Garlow, this precarious moment is a must, and I would say critical read. You can learn more about David Barton's work, ministry, and mission by visiting wallbuilders.com and get his book, 
this precarious moment you will be blessed you did david it has been an absolute honor having you share just a little of your story the story of our nation why we are where we are but more importantly what now your book this precarious moment in collaboration with dr jim garlow makes the case and powerfully so that through the biblically based values on which our nation was founded and a return to our spiritual roots nothing shall be impossible and with God at the center nothing is impossible we thank you and God bless you thanks so much and thanks for having me and thanks for all you do God bless and now ladies and gentlemen a special commentary from your host penned in 2015 just as relevant then as it is now entitled raising the standard when the enemy comes in like a flood God will raise up a standard Isaiah 59:19. what standard you ask a standard that comes from God's Word the God of the Bible the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob Yeshua Messiah and soon coming King in our world today we see another standard being set, an increasingly wicked and perverse standard. Where good is spoken of as evil, evil spoken of as good. Where restraints are cast off, and the biblical foundations that created our great nation are being destroyed by an enemy who knows his time is short. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the unrighteous rule, the people groan Proverbs 29 2 America is groaning today its quote leaders have become Ahab's and the Jezebel spirit is alive and well seeking to castigate anyone speaking truth to power biblical truths that is it's not a race issue it's a sin issue it's not an LGBT issue it's a sin issue. It's not a same-sex marriage issue. It's a sin issue. Whatever the issue, the scriptures are clear. A man does what's right in his own eyes, and the way thereof is death. Proverbs 14:12. Keyword here, death. I have come that ye might have life, and have that more abundantly. John 10:10. 10, 10. Keyword here life all have sinned and come short of the glory of God all Romans 323 keyword here sin so the question begs will you choose a life or death God's way or your way his standard or your standard and if God's standard how some scriptures to encourage you and a story to embolden you the righteous are as bold as a lion Proverbs 28 1 our righteousness is of him 2nd Corinthians 5 21 whoever contends with you I will contend with him Isaiah 49 25 as Queen Esther uttered the words quote if I perish I perish end quote before going before her king, exposing evil in the gates, God saw to it that her courage was honored, the wicked destroyed, her people set free, and her own life spared. 
She seized the moment, and so must we. As children of the Most High God, we are each of us called to be the Esters of our generation, the Daniels, the Josephs, on the battlefield and off, in the marketplace, in the pulpits, in our home and in our schools, our government, in media, arts and entertainment, in every sphere of influence, a standard can be set. His standard, His righteous rule, His way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John fourteen six. In what way, ladies and gentlemen, is God calling you to raise the standard for Him? Thank you for listening. Testimony is a global broadcast made possible by the generous contributions of our valued partners at Jensine Bard Ministries and you, our listening audience. Together, we are reaching souls for Christ, one testimony at a time. If you would like information on how you can support this broadcast with your tax-deductible gift, please visit us at jensinebard.com. That's one word, J-E-N-S-I-N-E-B-A-R-D.com. And join the conversation at our Facebook page, Testimony with Jensine Bard. Thank you for listening, and please join us again for Testimony.